1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be, where prayerfully, Lord willing, we're going to round out the first letter to the Thessalonians this morning. As you guys make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul has planted this church in Acts chapter 17. And as he planted the church, uh, Paul and Silas only had about three weeks that they were able to actually spend uh, with the people there in Thessalonica because of an uprising that transpired. They were actually ran out of town. And so as Paul and Silas make their way out of town and eventually end up in Athens, Paul grows concerned about this church in Thessalonica. You can imagine, he had to appoint leaders and a pastor after just three weeks of teaching. And so no doubt he's wondering how are they doing. And so he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica to take a report on how they're doing. And Paul and Silas go on to Corinth. And so he waits there in Corinth for Timothy until he gets word back. And what he gets is not only are they doing okay, but they're actually thriving. In the face of persecution and being pressed upon by all sides, they're actually thriving in the Lord. And so Paul writes this epistle, this letter to them, first of all, to encourage them. And what he does is he gives them in these first three chapters a personal encouragement, and he starts by reminding them of how God was faithful in their past. And this is why week after week I've encouraged you all to journal, because I don't know about you, I tend to forget about how God's been faithful in my past. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to go back to and be reminded of God's goodness throughout our lives. Now in chapter 1 verse 3, thankfully Paul gives us a nice tidy little outline there of the letter that he's going to write. He says, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gives these three different things that he's going to go through in this letter. And he starts with their work of faith. He talks about how they had turned from idols towards the true and living God in verse 10. And so he is encouraging them in the fact that everything around them in this Roman culture would have said, you have to be an idol worshiper. You have to be worshiping Zeus and all these pagan gods and goddesses. And yet they had turned towards the true and living God. No doubt this has caused much persecution and their family, and their friends, and their workplace. And so Paul wants to commend them on this good work. He secondly encourages them in their labor of love. They had grown in their relationship with Christ. They had become more loving to the people all around them. And what Paul says is, that's great, but it's not good enough. Continue to press in. Keep loving. Keep abounding in love. And then finally, he encourages them in the hope that they have for the future. And so he's going to address that in these last two chapters, the hope that they have for the return of Christ, their hope of salvation. And so in the church, there had become this misunderstanding about the rapture. And their concern was for all those who had died, probably or possibly due to persecution, that they would actually miss out on the return of Christ, that they would miss this season called the rapture. And so in this growing concern, Paul wanted to write and actually dispel those misunderstandings. And so he writes to them about the return of Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 17, we covered this last week, 
What Paul says is that then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That word caught up is translated into Greek harpazo, and to the Latin it is rapturo. It's where we get our word rapture from. So anyone that says the word rapture is not in the Bible, you can take them right here and say, brush up on your Latin, y'all, and you'd know a little bit more. And so right here we see this word caught up, taken away, snatched away as if by force, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so this promise of the return of Christ, he's going to come back for his bride. And so with all that in mind, how should we proceed? How should we minister as a church? Well, we should do so with urgency and also with anticipation. That he is not going to leave me here just to suffer and die, to have wrath poured out upon me. And so the Apostle Paul is going to unveil to show them this prophetic word of the Lord. Now for many of us, oftentimes when we talk about prophecy, things get a little weird. Like, I don't know about this. I don't understand it. I don't really like it. For others, this is your jam. You're all about the prophetic. But it's important for us to study through prophecy because did you know that one-third of your Bible actually concerns the prophetic? And so to take that out, to not want to read it, to not want to understand it, we miss a huge amount of what the Lord has for us. Now, the other thing I want to mention about prophecy is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Verse 3, he says that he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And so the purpose of prophecy, if you've ever heard someone give a prophecy and they say, uh, thus saith the Lord, y'all are going to fry like a sausage. Burn, baby. Um, that to me, is not uh, exhorting, which is strong encouragement. It is certainly not edifying, and I am in no way comforted by that. And so my suggestion would be that prophetic word did not come from our Lord Jesus nor His Holy Spirit. I know where it came from, and I would encourage you to tell them to take that prophecy uh, back from whence it came. And so the, the prophecies of the Lord should actually build us up. It should encourage us and provide comfort for us. Now, all that to start off in chapter 5, where Paul says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. And so as Paul is talking, he says, looking around, you should be able to notice the signs and the seasons, the times and the seasons, excuse me. And in seeing the times that you live in, you should actually be comforted. I have no need to tell you about these things. Now the first place that you'll see in your scripture that mentions times in seasons is actually way back in Genesis chapter 1 as God is speaking everything into existence. And what he says is the lights have been placed in the firmament, the stars in the sky, so that you can have understanding of the times and the seasons. You should be able to look up and have an understanding of things. You should understand that he is in control. And so as we look out on the signs and the times and see what's happening all around us, we should actually take comfort and courage knowing that he is in control, uh, not you and I. Not even mankind who often wants to puff themselves up and act like they're in control. In verse 2 he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now wait a minute. I was just supposed to know the times and the seasons. But this verse says he's going to come like a thief in the night. And I don't know when the thief is going to come in the night. So this is why I do not like prophecy. It's contradictory and it's upsetting. And so don't quit. 
continue to read into verse 3, where he says, For when they say, they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief." You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the dark nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And so, what Paul is sharing is for the unbeliever, the Lord is going to come back like a thief in the night. They are going to be utterly unprepared because they are in the dark. They have Refuse to receive the light, and therefore they don't have an understanding of the times. In fact, what they'll share over and over again is peace, peace, everything's going to be peaceful. And what we find is today in our society and in the world at large is there are all kinds of people proclaiming peace, plans for peace, treaties for peace. But do you know what they've left out of every one of those? The Prince of Peace. And so there can be and there will be no peace if man is generating it from themselves because we are, in fact, evil in our nature. And so it shouldn't be a, dis- a surprise that as peace is proclaimed, that destruction is actually the thing that's delivered. You'll notice that. All these treaties and all this peace, and yet there is no peace. But that should actually be a comfort to those who possess the Prince of Peace. Now, Jesus said something very similar as he was sharing about the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, this is what our Lord and Savior said in verse 37. He said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days of the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. As judgment was getting ready to be passed, what they would proclaim was peace. And yet there was no peace. It's fine, I'm fine, everything's fine. It's all fine. And yet it was not at all fine until judgment came. And so for those that are in the dark, the reality is they will continue to get darker. Our times will get darker. Aren't you glad you came today? The times that we're in are going to get darker. But here's the good news. We are sons and daughters of the light. We possess the only true light. And what John chapter 1 says is the darkness could not extinguish the light. It cannot be put out. And so we are called to be. And Jesus, in the very next parable, shares about the ten virgins. And what he says is there are five who have their oil ready, with lamp uh, ready, with oil in it, light on, and ready for the return of their groom. Looking for the return of Jesus. This is how we are called to be. The Holy Spirit in us, ready for Him to return, come quickly. And what Jesus says in John chapter 14 concerning the groom that would come for His bride, He says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself where I am there you may be also. Last week I shared with you that the the picture he's painting here is that of a Jewish traditional wedding where the groom would become engaged or actually technically married to the bride and yet he would go away to his 
father's house to build a room for his bride. And it wouldn't be until the room was complete that he would come back and and surprise his bride and take her home where they would spend their lives together. And so too it will be with us where we are waiting for our room to be completed. We're waiting for this dwelling place that we'll have for all of eternity for our groom to come back for his bride. And he will, in fact, do it as he said. Now continuing in verse 7. Paul writes, For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so we are to obtain what Paul mentions, the breastplate of faith. But you might wonder, how do I obtain faith? I have just a little faith. How do I get more faith? What Paul would write in Romans Chapter 10, verse 17, is that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That God's Word actually encourages us. It's, it's one of the reasons that we go through Scripture verse by verse, line upon line. Some would say meandering. I would say we have a little bit of an intentionality about us. We intend to finish the book today. And yet, it's by God's Word that faith is actually increased. And so our encouragement here from Paul is not to rely on the spirits. Have you ever wondered why alcohol, by the way, is called uh, spirits? It's because it is a cheap imitation for the spirit. And instead of making us awake, what it does is make us drowsy. And we sleep instead of uh, being prepared for the return of the Lord. And so Paul's encouragement here is to be armed and to be ready to go. The breastplate of faith and the helmet, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I was thinking about that this morning, about this armor that we are called by Paul to put on as we prepare ourselves for battle. And he mentions the breastplate, but then the last one is this helmet of the hope of salvation. And where does a helmet go but upon your head? And what does the enemy want to do but whisper? You're not good enough. Are you sure about the salvation you have? Are you sure he's really going to come back for you? Are you sure that what you read is true? And he wants to whisper these lies into our head and get us to second guess. And yet what Paul says is take the helmet of the hope of salvation and place it upon your head. Where all those lies, all those fiery darts that he wants to shoot at you, they go right off the helmet and right back to hell where they belong. And so be encouraged by that to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. For, he continues in verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. We can have this hope because we were not appointed to wrath. It couldn't be any more clear what Paul is trying to say. Now, have you ever wondered why we were not appointed to wrath? Is it because uh, we're super awesome? We got up early and showed up for church today? Is it because we can teach the Bible and look athletic in a swivel stool like this? I mean, look at those moves. Look at that. No. Because what Scripture says is that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And so the reality is when I was at my absolute worst, he gave his absolute best for me, and he did the same for you. 
And he did all this to deliver us from the wrath that he actually took on our behalf. Every nail, every punch to the face, every pulling of the hair, every thorn that was shoved into his skull, I deserved that. I deserved every single bit of it. And yet he took it for me. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says that the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, that means all the things that we have done, all the, the list of my sins and your sins, he, he looked upon all those things and they, they had condemned us, they had damned us for eternity. But what verse 14 says is that he nailed it to the cross and it was buried with him. And when he rose again, all those things stayed in the ground. That means that we were able to actually rise in Christ no longer sentenced to a life of wrath. And so, all that to say, if he took this for us, if Jesus willingly took wrath upon himself, why on earth would he turn around and then pour out the wrath of God upon us? It's not only not sensical, it's not even biblical. That he would appoint us to wrath. And what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter says, God knows how to deliver his children from wrath. He knows how to deliver us from judgment. With all this in mind, Paul continues in verse 11 and says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. With all this in mind, comfort each other. Encourage one another. Come alongside each other and build up the body. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And so here, the Apostle Paul encourages them to pray for those in ministry. I would encourage you, by the way, uh, please pray for those in ministry. Pray for those in leadership. That, that we take on a tremendous amount of spiritual attacks that often don't get communicated, but your prayers are appreciated. We need it. Now what he also mentions here in verse 13, he calls them brethren. Four times in these next several verses, the Apostle Paul is going to use this phrase, brethren, because these people, even though they had only known Paul for three weeks, they were his family. And we are in fact a church family. And there is safety and there is security when you come into a place that you can call family. Now for me as a kid, I grew up in a wonderful family down in the beautiful town of KZ, Illinois. There were no big things in the small town, by the way, when I was a kid. Uh, there was only uh, a racetrack in the middle of the park, a quarter midget track. And every Saturday evening, uh, my family, we got the opportunity to race quarter midgets. There's a reason I still throw a baseball like a girl. It's because uh, I did not get to play baseball as a kid because uh, I was driving race cars. So you may make fun of me when you see me throwing a ball, but I'm going to outdrive you. Just watch me go. But I grew up at the 
racetrack, Friday nights in Terre Haute, Saturday nights in Casey. And I remember being about 10 or 11 years old one particular uh, Friday night in Terre Haute, and we always had this family that challenged us, the evil Varner family from Robinson. Now, it was my dad there at the track as well as my uh, grandfather, Mo Ashley. Some of you know him. He was a larger-than-life guy, 6'5", 300 pounds. He was a big man. And I remember coming off the track after this race, and one thing that you didn't do to our family is you did not cheat us. And as a kid pulling off the track, I remember seeing my father standing there with the Varner kid's father, and he had his shirt pulled up right up in his chest, shaking on it. And then next to him, there was my grandfather who had a hold of Grandpa Varner. And he had a hold of his shirt. And the thing was, he wasn't on the ground any longer. Grandpa Varner now had his feet dangling as my grandfather just shook him like a rag doll. Now, I'm not saying that was super holy. But what I am saying is, in that moment, I remember as a kid thinking, I'm thankful for my family. (laughs) Because I am way safer than those people right now. I felt protected. I felt cared for. And that too is how we should be as the body of Christ. There should be security. There should be protection. I'm not advocating grabbing people and shaking them around. But what I am saying is we should come alongside one another and protect that which is ours. Now continuing, Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. And so Paul gives four orders for the church to consider. The first of which he says in verse 14, warn those who are unruly. That as we love on one another, we should be able to come alongside and warn those who have stepped out of line. That are struggling in a particular area. Now we intend to go one of two ways. Either we don't want to deal with people that are being unruly because it's messy and it's awkward and it's scary but let me tell you it is actually unloving not to address things or we go to the other side and we want to address every little thing we want to be the god squad the jesus police and we want to talk about everything going on in somebody else's lives we don't want to be either we want to come right down the middle and come alongside someone and if you're gonna speak into someone's life let me say this you must be invested in that person You cannot speak into someone's life that you just said hi to one Sunday at church. You have to be invested. Think about it like a bank account. You cannot take a withdrawal out of someone's account if you've made no deposits. And it takes a lot of deposits before you can pull anything out of the account. But we are to do this in love as we care for one another. The second thing Paul mentions in verse 14 is that we are to comfort the faint-hearted. We're to come alongside those who are tempted to quit. There are people among us who when it gets hard, we just want to go, that's it, I'm out, that's why I didn't like any of this church stuff in the first place. And we are tempted to quit. And so we're encouraged to come alongside those who are tempted to just say, I'm done with this. Thirdly, we're to support those who are weak. He's talking about spiritual weakness. There are always going to be people in a body of Christ, some who are ahead of you spiritually and some who are behind you spiritually. I assure you of that. And so we're called, we're encouraged to come alongside those who are weaker spiritually to encourage. And then finally, he says we should 
have patience with all. And if you look up this word all in the Greek and you translate it into English, the word is all. It's, it, it means all. Both believer and unbeliever. That as the body of Christ, we should go out and be patient with everyone. Which means even as I go to the McDonald's and they jack my order up for the 42nd time and I'm ready to just pinch somebody's head off because I didn't get my flame broiled burger. That's Burger King. But either way, now I'm even more upset. I'm in the wrong line. But I, I didn't get my order the way I wanted it. And so I'm ready to just strangle somebody. The reality is, at least for me, I probably didn't need the cheeseburger that bad anyway. So thank you, Lord. But I'm called to be patient with them. To be the hands and feet of Jesus to those who maybe do not believe in him. And so called to be patient to all. Now verse 15 See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but also pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. Now this is where my racetrack analogy breaks down. He says, see that no one renders evil for evil. The idea is do not come along and try to take an eye for an eye. That's not how we're to be. In fact, what Jesus says in Luke 6.28 is that we should actually pray for those who spitefully use you. That is easy to say and very difficult to do. Someone who intentionally tries to use and abuse you, what Jesus encourages is pray for them. Pray for them. And what I will encourage you in is this, that you cannot stay mad at someone that you pray for consistently. I dare you to try. Someone you're willing to pray for consistently, you cannot stay mad at which is why I always want Angela to pray with me. <laughs> she can't stay mad if she prays. Oh, yeah. Continuing, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hobby Lobby should frame that and put that up in people's houses. Wait, they already do. Okay, lots of times I will hear people say, I just want to know the will of God in my life. What does God want for me? What does he will for me to do? And I would tell you, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting verse 16. Paul says, rejoice always. Every situation we have, there is something to rejoice in. If we choose to believe it or see it is another story. That rejoicing always is a decision I can actually make to find something good in the spot that I'm in. Years ago at Parkland Chapel, we had a guy named uh, Ivory Garrison. Ivory went home to be with the Lord about three years ago. But he was a large African-American gentleman. And he had spent about 10 years uh, in the penitentiary in St. Louis because of some drug charges. Ivory had been... Uh, delivered though from that and he had made his way on down to Farmington to get away from that scene to my knowledge he never had a driver's license he always walked everywhere in town and every time I heard Ivory pray I was moved to tears because here was a man whose own brother had died of freezing to death in an outhouse in St. Louis he had come out of the worst hell hole you could ever imagine and yet as he prayed and he had nearly nothing to his name he'd say thank you God for the air I have to breathe. Thank you, God, that today I am free. And I thought, how many times have I looked on my situation and I have refused to rejoice 
And this man is praising the Lord for air. It's convicting for sure. And so I would encourage you to pray like my friend Ivory would pray. Secondly, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now that doesn't mean we're to be on our knees 24-7 with our eyes closed. We're not going to get much done if that's how we're going to operate. But what Paul's encouraging here is to have a consciousness that is aware of God. To think on Him. To see Him in all the different aspects of your life. What I encourage people to do is make God really, really big in your life. If you make Him really, really big, He will show up in the smallest of ways. You will see him in the most minute of details. And conversely, if you make God really, really small in your life, he will have to show up in a huge way for you to even recognize him. And so make God big. Have a consciousness that is aware of his presence. Finally, Paul writes in verse 18, In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He says, In Everything, in all things, be thankful. Notice with me, he does not say for. (laughs) Because there are some things that we cannot be thankful for. There are diagnoses that we did not expect. Those are hard to be thankful for. There's a loved one that left us in an untimely way. I cannot be thankful for that. And yet, in the midst of that, I can be thankful. Be thankful in all things. Because at the very least, you have to acknowledge if God allowed it, he has a purpose for it. And everything that transpires in our life, he is either allowed or in some cases even caused to take place because he has a purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If this isn't highlighted in your Bible, please highlight it. You're not going to go to hell for highlighting stuff in your Bible, I promise. Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. All things. And so the reality is, is if it's not good, it's because He's not done yet. He's still at work in that situation. All things He has a purpose for. Now, continuing in verse 19... Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And so here Paul says something very interesting. Do not quench the spirit. We have looked at this before, but just as a brief reminder, there are three different relationships you'll see in the New Testament that we have with the Holy Spirit. Three prepositions in the Greek. The first is that he is with us. In John chapter 14, verse 17 Jesus here is speaking to the disciples. And what he is sharing with them is about specifically the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 17, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. The preposition is para, paired with, alongside. And this is the case for every person that draws a breath. The Holy Spirit is with them. And what he is always doing is pointing them back to their need of a Savior. Pointing back to salvation. Back to the Son. And so the Holy Spirit is there with all people pointing to our need for a Savior. And yet, what Jesus says in Matthew 12, the unforgivable sin is that he can be blasphemed. 
That means a continual denial of the Holy Spirit. Refusing to accept Jesus until we either draw our last breath or until we're so far gone uh, we can no longer return. And so if uh, you're concerned at all in this room that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, uh, I want to give you a little reassurance. You haven't. (laughs) If you're concerned that you might have, you didn't. Because you still have a God consciousness, still have a concern. Those who have blasphemed that are still drawing a breath, they don't even have a a thought towards God. And so blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Now, once we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, what Jesus says is that He is with you in verse 17, and He will be in you. After His death and then His resurrection, He breathed upon them in John's account, and He said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, and He came in them. That's that second preposition. That's where he comes and dwells in us at the moment of salvation. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, is a mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That as you receive Jesus, you actually have this hope of glory. It's like the uh, earnest deposit for heaven. That if he is in you, he is going to come back for you. And so we have this hope of glory. And yet, what Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians is that he can be grieved. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does grieving the Holy Spirit mean? It is for the one who has received Christ as their Savior and yet will not get out of a life of habitual sin that continues in that cycle and does not get themselves out of it And what you'll find if you run into someone living that life, you will come across the most miserable person you have ever interacted with. Because they know the truth. They have the truth in them, and yet they deny the truth. What Paul goes on in verse 31 to say is, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in these areas because that's no longer your character. And so grieving the Holy Spirit is that what can be done for those who have received him. But then thirdly and finally, this last preposition, I'm almost there. It's the word upon or the Greek preposition api. And we see this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. He's speaking there to the disciples. And what he says is, but you shall receive the Holy Spirit. When he has come upon you, there's that preposition, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to all the earth. You shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word there is dunamos. It's dynamite. You can have dynamite power when he comes upon you. This is that baptism of the Holy Spirit so that we can be witnesses to the people in our everyday lives and all around the world. And yet, what Paul is sharing here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is that he can be quenched. We can pour water on, we can pour it out upon the Holy Spirit when I deny the gifts that he's given me. I deny the ways that he wants to allow me to be a witness in the lives of the people all around me. And so do not quench the Holy Spirit. 
how then do we remain effective? How do I stay in this spot where I can be effective for him and be set apart? I'm so glad you asked that question. Continue on. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify, that means set apart, you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can I be in this spot where I remain powerful? It's abstaining from evil. It's continuing in this life of set-apartness, sanctity. Now, here's the impasse for the Christian church. This is one of those areas that I always wonder, do I share about this this week or do I not? And then the week unfolds and God brings about things uh, in my week and I go, okay, I have to talk about this. Thank you, Lord, for making it clear. But our liberty that we have in Christ, the, the issue we have is this tremendous liberty and yet we can misuse our liberty in Jesus. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 is this, Concerning his liberty, the freedom that he has in Christ. There in verse 12, he starts by saying that all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not uh, be brought under the power of any. And so we have this incredible freedom, this liberty in Christ, and yet not everything that we take in is actually edifying. It's not all, uh, it's not all good for us. It doesn't all uh, help us in our journey. Paul continues in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians to talk about a very strange thing, meat sacrifice to idols. We're like, okay, this is getting weird. What does meat sacrifice to idols have to do with where we're at today? Well, in Paul's day, what they would do is uh, they would sacrifice meat to these pagan idols. And for the Christian who now has liberty in Jesus, they can go to the market and they can get a lower-priced steak from the marketplace. And so it's like going to Aldi's to shop for your meats, right? I want to save a few bucks. I got liberty to go to Aldi's, but I'm going to save a little bit of money. And what Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 8 is that there are other brothers in the assembly who have come out of pagan idolatry. They've been released from that. And when they see you eating in the marketplace, in that restaurant, your freedom can actually affect them and make them turn back to idolatry. It can affect how they view their relationship with Christ. It can stumble a brother. And what Paul says at the end of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, is this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. And so what Paul is sharing there is that I'm not going to misuse the liberty I have if it affects someone else. Now, where in the world are you going with that? The meat sacrificed to idols, I believe, of our day, more often than not, ends up being the consumption of alcohol. That the reality is, in the Christian church, we have liberty to drink. We can have a glass of wine. We can have a beer. But what happens is that if I'm not careful, I can actually stumble one who is weaker than me. While I might have liberty, they might actually be stumbled by seeing me out and about acting in such a way. It's not technically a sin, and yet if it makes my brother stumble, what Paul says is, I will not partake. 
Now, how does that relate to you and I with our liberty? Well, for me, uh, I abstain completely and entirely for a few different reasons. Uh, First of which is just what I'm sharing about stumbling a brother. What I know based upon my past and my own struggles with alcohol, I was a functional alcoholic. And so as I struggled with that, what I know is that if I would have saw my pastor at uh, dirties with a big old 30-ouncer in front of him, now that might have been a sin, a 12-ouncer in front of him, uh, it would have completely stumbled me. I would have lied like I normally did and said, that doesn't matter to me. That's just more reason why I can. But inside, it would have destroyed me. And so I will not partake for that as a reason. The other reason is for those that live in my household. You see, I have what is known as an addictive personality. And they also have a similar DNA to me, which means that there is a very good likelihood they're going to have my same addictive personality. Now, while I have been delivered from my struggles with alcohol, um, and I can now probably handle myself just fine, uh, what if they cannot? What if they stumble into that sinful state? What if it absolutely destroys their lives because of my own addictive personality that I have passed on to the generations below me? And so that is reason number two that I do not partake. Reason number three, and lastly, is that it is actually a joy to get to not. I don't have to fill myself with any kind of imitation spirit any longer because he who dwells in me is greater than anything that is in this world. And so it is actually a pleasure to give up liberty so that others can be free. This last week, I got the opportunity to go with uh, the twins to the railway museum in Monticello. And while I was there in the railway museum, it wasn't a a rail car that really struck me, but instead there was a casket in there. And this casket had a little nameplate over it and and some information. It was uh, in honor of a man who had given his life in 1918, and he was from Monticello in World War I. He lost his life. And they had to ship him back on the rail car all the way back to his home there in Monticello. And it took a year. It wasn't until 1919 that his parents were actually able to bury this young man. And as I was looking at that, I see the date that he was born. 19, or 1898. 1918 he gave his life. 20 years old. And here I am standing at 43 with my boys. How could I even stand there? The reason that I was able to have freedom and liberty to go about teaching the Bible and sharing with people and be in a railway museum was because this man gave up his liberty so that I could have freedom, you see. The same as Christ Jesus, who gave up all the freedom, all the power, all the liberty that he had on his throne, poured himself into a man reducing himself down to this state so that you and I could actually have freedom and liberty. And so if all I have to do is abstain from even the appearance of evil, even the appearance of something being off in my witness, then who am I not 
to do that so that someone else could be free, you see. All right, enough of us all being uncomfortable. Let's continue. Verse 24. If you're concerned with how this is possible, if you're stuck in that spot, how could I give this up? Whatever your thing is, maybe it's nothing I addressed, but if you're concerned with how could I possibly get out of this spot that I'm in and into a place where I have freedom and liberty from the things that trap me, here's verse 24. He says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. (laughs) He is not looking for us to do it on our own own. In fact, he has called us. He is the one who is faithful, and he is the one who will do it. All these things, what Christ is saying is, I am willing to do it all for those who simply believe. Just a little bit of belief goes a long way. And so the promise here is that he's not going to leave us alone. He is going to do it. Verse 25, he says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, let me just stop right there. Uh, No more holy kissing is necessary. That was cultural. A nice holy handshake or a holy side hug will do just fine. Uh, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so Paul's final charge consists of these three things. To pray, to study the word, and to be kind. Three very easy things he gives this church in Thessalonica to do. To pray, to study God's word, and to be kind. And what I want to highlight with this is the aspect of kindness. That the practical piece of just being kind to people that walk in the door, it can be the thing that allows the spiritual to take place. All the time, this is what we're doing. We are trying to get things practically, to have chairs to sit in, to have air conditioning, to have screens you can look upon. All this practical stuff is done so that the spiritual things can actually happen. But do not underestimate being kind, being warm, being welcoming as a body. That in fact, if we do this, what happens is people can then receive the word of God. And that's the thing that changes everything. I can do the absolute best job possible. I probably didn't do it today, but one of these days I'm going to do a great job. Homiletically, hermeneutically, that means preaching the word and explaining God's word. I can, I can lay it out there really well. But if we're not kind, then his word isn't going to be heard by people. But if we are kind and welcoming then what Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says is that it's God's kindness or the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. That's the piece that actually changes things. It's the goodness of God and welcoming people in so they can experience God's goodness and be changed for all of eternity. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for this first letter to the Thessalonians. No doubt, Lord, uh, it's challenging for us, uh, and yet you're in the midst. You're working in and on and through people in this room and in those that we have the opportunity to connect with in our daily lives. Lord Jesus, would you please continue to do a work? Thank you so much that you are faithful and you are willing to do what it is that we could not do 
for ourselves. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name.